Job chapter 1, Job chapter 1, verse 13. I want to preach a message called Double for Your Trouble. Somebody say double. I feel like the, the, there's like an African song, double, double, but I don't know it, so I'm just going to read. No, don't sing it. I don't want to hear it. Okay, here we go. Job chapter 1, verse 13, and it says, Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, the seven oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell upon heaven, fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have a seen. Can you talk about the worst day in one human's life in all of history? Lost all of his children, all of his possessions, all of his land, all of his servants, and look at Job's response, verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell to the ground, and worshiped. Two things this tells me. One, Job's more spiritual than I am. Because if I'm losing everything in life, worship is not the first thing that's coming to my mind. Man, what is it about Job that gave him the fortitude to not curse God and die in one of the most worst situations I've ever experienced? Well, let me pray. Father God, we're grateful, we're thankful. God, that even when we don't understand what you're doing, God, you're still faithful. And God, because you're faithful, we can trust that we may not understand it, but all things work together for our good. Father God, we pray for you to speak to us in this moment. God, take us one step closer to the plan, the purpose, the destiny that you have for us. And God, we praise you for the leftover food that is still in our fridge, that is still going to be a blessing to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Is it just me or is it not good until the day after Thanksgiving? Like, it, it's good, but you gotta wait for it to like coagulate and just kind of the seasoning to kind of get on through it. I, I love Thanksgiving. I love Christmas. I love this holiday season. I turn into a little elf and I'm just like, let's decorate everything. Let's put up a tree and gotta be a real tree. None of these little fake trees that are not of God. We serve a real God and a real God loves real trees. That's just a personal pet peeve. My wife, you can tell on the opposite side. We're on the opposite side that owns everything when it comes to decorating the house. But I get nostalgic kind of around this holiday season because I just remember all the different like childhood memories and all the different things that we used to do. One of the things that I connect Thanksgiving with is football. I, uh, I used to play football back in the days uh, where weight did not matter. Shout out to Randallstown Panthers. 
and uh, we would have our turkey bowl every Friday after Thanksgiving. We'd, we'd play some team that drove down from Delaware or Pennsylvania or some out-of-state team or whatever it may be, but every Thanksgiving was just my football. It was like the last game of the football season. Now, if you are from the Randallstown campus or uh, you play for Randallstown Panthers, God bless you, uh, you may not have been on the team that I was on, but the team that I was on is where they got the movie script for the Bad News Bears. Um, we... We just, we just, we had heart, okay? We had heart, okay? We didn't even have heart. We were not good at all, and there was probably not one game, unless we were playing Woodlawn, because Woodlawn was trash, and we would always beat them. But everybody else, there was not one game that we were not at least down by 21 points at the end of the first quarter. Now, there are some games that we won, but even in the games that we won, we were down by 21 points in the first quarter. And it does something to your psyche when you are always losing and always behind. And sometimes you're not fighting to win. You're just fighting for like dignity. I just need this score not to be 49 to 0. 49 to 14, I can hold my head up. I could go home. I can say, hey, it's not fair. They only had college dropouts on their team. We had a bunch of 13-year-olds. That's the kind of the way it goes. But 49-0, I can't handle that. A lot of the time, I found myself fighting for dignity, not fighting for a win. Here's just a thought as we begin to set a framework or a picture for this message. One of the plans of the enemy is to get you in a place where you're always fighting to survive. Where you're not in a position where you're actually fighting for new territory or fresh territory. You're actually looking to build something great. You're just fighting to survive. For example, in our marriage, we're not looking to build a marriage that was amazing, that's awesome, that, that's building something great. We're just trying not to kill each other. If we could just get to a place where we're not yelling, not screaming, not throwing things, would be in a, or in our finances, I'm just trying to get to a place where I can get to the end of the year Look at my W-2 and not have words that Jesus would not be pleased of coming out of my mouth saying, there is no way I made all this money. Where did it all go? Maybe it's your health where you're not prepping for a double marathon or whatever it may be. You're just like, man, if I could just get my blood pressure down, if I can just get it to a manageable, if, if, you, if we step back and think a lot of our lives, our time and our energy is spent fighting back to zero. Getting to the place where we don't feel overwhelmed. Getting to the place where we don't feel like we're behind. And hear me, the enemy wants to keep you in a place where you're fighting to survive. But Jesus did not die on the cross for his children to be fighting to survive. He said we are more than overcomers. Job chapter 1 um, is possibly one of the most confusing passages in scripture. And it is a, what, what would we call it, Temi? A, a theological minefield. Um, be, because, yo, it says that Satan uh, was in God's presence, which messes up 70% of Christians' theology because, they, well, wherever the presence of the Lord is, Satan can't be there. Job chapter one, he's there. Step number one, problem. Step number two, Satan asked permission of God whether he can attack Job's life. Now, 
Before I get into the part where God grants that permission, let me back up and say, Satan has to ask permission anytime he attacks a believer of the Lord, which means that if I am a follower of God, the Bible says that his angels encamp around me. I am guarded, I'm protected, that God is literally there taking every step with me. Now, if you are an unbeliever, your life is open for the enemy, as the old folks would say, to run roughshod all over. You have, you are on your own. That is why it's so vital to be a follower of God. But here's, here's what's confusing. Satan asked God, he said, hey, can I have permission to attack Job's life? The only reason Job is blessing you is because you've blessed Job. I mean, why wouldn't he bless God after all his wealth and all of his possessions? But if you remove your hedge of protection from Job, he will surely curse you. Look what God said. It's it's almost as if God volunteers Job. He said, have you considered my servant Job? And he gave him permission. Why would, anybody's theology messed up? Anybody a little frustrated with God right now? Why would you give the enemy access to my life? Well, here's what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse five. And have you quite forgotten? Here's what God says. The encouraging words of God spoken to you, his child. He said, my son, do not be angry when the Lord punishes you. Don't be discouraged when he has shown you where you are wrong. For when he punishes you, it proves that he loves you. When he whips you, it proves you are really his child. Things that we don't read often in Scripture. Now, we live in 2022 where nobody wants to whoop their kids because I want my child to be able to express themselves and show their feelings and their truth. Well, the Bible says they're going to express sin because that's what's on the inside of it. The Bible actually says that when we don't spank our children, that we hate them. This ain't a parenting message that's coming up in February, but let me just give you kind of the cliff notes. Some of y'all are raising kids that you're going to eventually end up not liking because you're raising a monster. Move on, move on. That's not the message. But here's what we don't realize. The Bible says as God expects parents to spank their kids, that God spanks. Anybody ever got a butt for God? Well, I didn't know that's what it was, but looking back, I'm realizing that the Bible says it's actually proof that you are accepted as God's child. My my mom growing up, everybody had this one mom in the neighborhood. It took me a while to realize that it was my mom that was that mom. My mom was the mom in the neighborhood that all my friends were afraid of because she was the one mom that would whoop her kids and would whoop other kids as well. Now, she wouldn't like just randomly whoop a kid because they were acting out. She would get on the phone and call my friend's parents and ask permission to whoop their child. And I don't know what these people were thinking. It's about the 90s. But back then, they let other people whoop their children. You're like, oh, they said what? Oh, they fought what? They did what? Go ahead. And then I'll whoop them when I get there too. (laughs) Here, God was not like my mama. He wouldn't beat people that are not his kids. God said, it's actually proof that I'm your child, that you're my child. When I discipline you, we were at uh, 
Red Lobster. We, we decided to take a family road trip. We will never do that again. Three hours. It wasn't even a real road trip. It was like to Virginia. Three hours in a car with the 18-month-old. Forget the other two. This child, Zobair, so, so I mean, my baby girl, she turned up from the second we left the neighborhood to the second we came back. But we're sitting at Red Lobster. The waiter goes, wow, your children are so well-behaved. And every time a waiter tells me that, I always roll my eyes because I'm really thinking, no, your children are bad-behaved. And she's like, if this was my five-year-old, he'd be running around the room and all this other kind of stuff. And, and she could not figure out why my kids were sitting at the table coloring their coloring pages or whatever it may be. And I couldn't tell her because it's 2022 because they know if they leave this table, <laughs> they are going to regret that they did it. <laughs> okay, move off from whooping kids. Could it be that God was using Satan to whoop Job? Hmm? Could it be that God actually offered up Job because he was trying to work something out of Job's character to position him for what he had next for him? As you read through the book of Job, you're going to find out that Job had pride bound up in his heart. Here's what Job said. Job said, I've never sinned. Try that on for size. Job said, I've never done anything outside of the law of God. I don't deserve that. Now, here's what Job probably meant. Job probably meant, compared to my wretched friends, I have done less evil than the rest of those reprobates. But he did not mean he was perfect because the Bible says there is none that is perfect, no, not one. As you read through Job's defense of himself, you realize Job really thought a lot about himself. Actually, when God finally revealed himself to Job in the latter part of the book, here's what Job said. Job said, God, I had heard of you, but now I had seen you for myself. Could it be that Job's pride had turned into religion? Where Job knew about God and he could talk about God and he could preach about God and he could shout about God and he could tithe to God. He had just never met God. God understood that where he was taking Job, the blessing and the miracles that he had for Job's life, if Job was going to maximize his next season, God says, I can't leave that pride in his heart. So here's what I'll do. I'll allow the enemy to come in to actually create hardship, to turn Job's heart back to me, which is a discipline and a setup for what I have next from God. Yes, some of the hardship that we face is not God disciplining us. It is 100% an attack of the enemy. And as we respond to that attack in faith and in purpose, we will see the enemy push back. But some of what we go through is God trying to expose things in our heart that are keeping us from the next thing that he has for us. It's not meant to kill you. It's meant to develop you. What I want to talk over the rest of the time that we have is just three quick thoughts of how do I make it through an attack of the enemy? How do I make it through a storm? How do I make it through a hardship? How do I make it through a sickness or a bankruptcy or whatever? How do I make it through this situation without losing hope? The first thing is this, write this down. No matter how bad it gets, remember, it's not over. No matter how bad it gets, remember, it's not over. Watch this. 
The enemy's goal for attacking Job's life was not to steal from him. His plan wasn't to steal his kids, wasn't to steal his possessions. It wasn't to steal all that he had. The enemy's plan for Job was to demoralize him. Think about it. There were four different people that came into Job. The first one said, hey, here's what happened. I'm the only one who survived, and I have now come to give you the message. And then what did it say? While that person was still speaking, another person came and said, here's what happened. Here's the tragedy. I'm the only one to survive now. And then it says, while he was still speaking. Okay, help me out here. If you're the only one who survived, why are there three other bad news bearers right behind you with heart? You're not the only one who survived. You're using those words to over me. Think about it. The enemy could have taken Job's kids, servants, land, and property in one swoop. But he said, no, no, no. If I take it all at once, it's not going to be dejecting enough. It's not going to be demoralizing enough. I'm going to make sure that there's one tragedy, then another, then another, then another. You know you're under an attack of the enemy. When it's not just one situation, but it's one followed by the next, followed by the next. Here's what the Bible says. When the enemy comes in like a a flood. Zai and I uh, were on vacation uh, one year, and uh, I called myself. I don't know if I was surfing. I don't know what I was doing. But the waves were like, I mean, if I'm 5'11 and 3 quarters, uh, the waves were like probably like six, seven foot waves. And I mean, it was just beautiful to see. And I'm just like, I want to go out and kind of, you know, get my surf on or whatever. So I got my little surfboard and I go out there and I'm kind of just standing and catching a few waves. I'm not a great surfer by any means, but I kind of just kind of, I was at a point where I was resting. And I'm kind of standing out there, and y'all, the water had to have been up to my knees. And I'm just standing there, and this wave comes, and if you see a wave come, you kind of duck under it or whatever it may be. So the wave comes, and I duck under it. The problem is, I did not see that there was a second wave right behind that first wave. So I see the first wave coming, I duck. The second wave comes, and we're going to call that second wave Suge Knight. <laughs> you call me Vanilla Ice because that second wave picked me up, flipped me upside down, shook all the money out of my pockets. <laughs> I mean, literally knocked me off of my feet and I do a somersault in the water and as I'm in the water, and y'all, you got to understand, I was able to stand up so it wasn't like this was like deep, deep water even though it was dragging me out to sea and I nearly died and my wife didn't even see because she was reading in the book. But anyway... I was completely disoriented, didn't know which way was up. I'm trying to figure out where I'm at, where the surfboard is, what's going on, why. It wasn't the first wave, it was the second wave. One of the goals of the enemy is to overwhelm you with situation after situation. Why? I don't just want to take from you, I want to take your hope. Because if I can take your hope, I can take your prayer. If I could take your prayer, I could take your lifeline, I could take your connection to God. Here's what the enemy said, Job chapter 1, verse 11. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. It is vital that whatever you do, don't give up hope. Now, suicide is the ultimate giving up of hope. 
You're no longer hoping for a situation. I have no hope for life that there's any purpose or there's any meaning for me here on earth. Let me take a moment and talk to that person that you're even considering. I don't know if anybody would miss me. We would miss you. There's a plan. There's a purpose. There is something that God has for you. Yes, it's a difficult season. It's a difficult situation. Maybe it's been so long since you've smiled, you can't even call it a season anymore. But you've got to understand that God has more for you, that God has peace for you. God has joy for you. God has purpose for you. Here's the thing, though. If we're not battling suicidal thoughts, we may think, I haven't lost my hope because we don't know the indications of hope being stolen. You know your hope is gone when you stop praying about the situation. A sign of hopelessness is, I don't even bring it up to God anymore. You know why? Because you've accepted it as reality. Because you've said nothing in this situation is gonna change, so I might as well live with it. No, you have lost hope of God doing something miraculous in that area. You know you've lost hope when your words indicate that you've accepted it. You no longer are saying when this changes. You're no longer saying as long as I'm in this season. You're no longer saying until things take a turn. You're now making plans and, and your words are, this is my life, this is my reality, this is what it's gonna be. No, 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 you have lost hope that that loved one will ever come to Jesus. You've lost hope that you'll ever be healed. You've lost hope that your financial situation will turn around. You have lost hope. Another indication that you've lost hope is where you have no vision for the other side of this season. You, you're, you're not even dreaming about what it would be like to be healthy. You're not even dreaming about what it would be like when this relationship is restored or, or when this hardship, you, you've, you've, you've lost the most important thing that you could ever own. And that's hope that God is who he says he is and that he's gonna do what he said he's gonna do. Romans chapter five, verse five says this, now hope does not disappoint. Whatever you do, don't lose hope because hope in God doesn't disappoint. Because the love of God has, pour, has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Though the enemy comes in like a flood, do not let life situations steal your hope. The second thing is this. No matter how bad it gets, never say die. You, you ever... You ever watch one of those wrestling matches? And I don't watch wrestling anymore, but you ever watch one of the wrestling matches or maybe UFC or whatever it may be, and, and you know the fight is over when the person taps. What Tapping means, had enough. Stop punching me in my brain. I'm done. I can't take any more. Well, there's certain people that they, you, you'll, you'll see it in a UFC fight in particular. The ref will have to stop the fight because that person is not gonna tap out no matter what. They say, you can do whatever to me, I will not quit. Hear me, never say die. This is where I get in trouble. A lot of people do more harm to themselves than the enemy ever could. A lot of people, it's not the storm that you went through that puts you in the situation that you're in right now, it's your response to the storm. Like, for example, you ever, this is a bad example, you ever hydroplane? 
You ever been driving on a car or driving your car late at night or whatever it may be and you hit a patch of ice or, or you hit some water or whatever it may be, you were going too fast and your car just loses control? Now, it's not the water that puts you into the cement wall. It's not the fact that you hit that ice or that your car began to hit water and hydroplane. It's the part that when you've lost control, you panicked. And you jerked your steering wheel to the right, and then you jerked it. And it was your panic and your overreaction that made a bad situation permanent. It wasn't that divorce that had you paralyzed in life where you are right now. It's the bitterness that you adopted on the other side of that that has you paralyzed where you are right now. It's not that bankruptcy that took place five years ago that determined that you'll never have a financial future. It's you throwing up your hands saying, it doesn't matter what happens from here on out. My credit is already destroyed, so I might as well. And then you doubled down. You compounded on that bad decision. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 18 says, where there is no vision, the people are, watch this, unrestrained. But happy is one who keeps the law. Hear me. There is life after setback. There's life after tragedy. There's life after a difficult situation. And you've got to make up in your mind, I am not going to throw in the towel. Even though I've got knocked down, I'm not going to give up. I refuse to die here. How, 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 do, I, how do I not throw in the towel? Can I, Here's some things that people won't do. First step is this. You've got to acknowledge the situation that you're in. A lot of times people won't say, this is bad. Like, this is, and, and here's the thing. If you don't admit that the situation you're in is bad, you won't allow your emotions, your soul, your mind, your will to even deal with the reality that you're in. I, I um, oh, this is going to sound very middle schoolish, but that's okay. I had a really, 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 really good friend uh, that walked out of my life. And it was just, you know, it is what it is type of deal. And I, you know, I, I wouldn't allow myself to acknowledge that they were a good friend. I went the route of, I didn't need them anyway. Bye, Felicia. I was, and then I got, I got really angry that the person walked out over something so petty. And I was angry for like two weeks. And then after I got angry, then I got really sad. And I'm like, man, all these years that we've had together, I mean like over 10 years and gone. And then after I got sad, then I'm like, well, it is what it is. I did everything that I could. I feel my heart's right before God, and I've apologized for what about part in it, and you know, now you just move on and you live your life. And it's not until, this is why I hate podcasts, because they tell you about yourself before you. It's not until about four weeks later, I was listening to some random podcast, and I realized I had just walked through all the steps of grief. <laughs> Step number one of grief is anger. Apparently, step number two is mourning and actually grieving it. And then step number three is acceptance. Well, watch this. If I never acknowledge that I'm in a storm, I will never allow myself to get angry over that cancer diagnosis. And if I don't allow myself to get angry over that cancer diagnosis, I'll never allow God to address my anger. 
And there's so many people that think faith is to pretend like it never happened. Or faith is to say, oh, God is good all the time. We're not talking about God. We're talking about your life. And God is good, but that hurt, and that was painful, and that was a loss. And I really had hope that that wouldn't turn out the way that it turned out. And when I allow myself to acknowledge that, then I can actually deal with it. And when I deal with it, I won't die there. But when I refuse to deal with it, I'm, I'm, making a, I'm building a memorial. It's like, for example, Abraham's father. Abraham's father was called by God to go into another nation. And on that journey, Abraham's father lost his son, Haran, who was Abram's brother. Instead of dealing with his grief and bringing that grief to God, it says that he set up camp there, named the city Haran, and refused to move on. If I decide I will not acknowledge or deal with a tragedy in my life, a storm or, or just a setback, Without even realizing emotionally, I'm saying I'm going to die here and I'm never going to move forward. Psalm 30 verse 5 says this, for God's anger, his anger is but for a moment. It's just a season, but his favor is for a life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning, hear me, you may find yourself in a season where you're weeping. You may find yourself in a season where something you put all of your hopes and dreams in did not come to pass. Get angry, grieve it, and then let God restore it. But don't you dare park there. It's a night, but I'm telling you, morning is coming. And God has great things in store for you. Here's what's wild. I, 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 I was talking to somebody and they said, you know, you just need to pray and you just need to hear from God. And I said, yeah, but if you read the book of Job, God was silent for 30-something chapters. So it's not necessarily that God's going to speak right away. But watch this. The moment that Job heard from God and the moment that everything Job lost was restored was the moment Job stopped thinking about himself. Job chapter 42, verse 10, it says this, watch this. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. It's not, Lisa, can I get in trouble? After Job joined a dream team, then God restored, oh, here's what the enemy wants. He wants that if he can't abort your life, your future, your plans, that he can get you in a pity party where you can't see anybody else but yourself. And all you can think about is your problem, your situation, your life, how it's not fair, how things are not going your way. You don't have time to pick up your phone and encourage anybody else. You don't have time to think about somebody else because you're so consumed in what's going on in your life. Watch this. The second Job began to pray that God would restore his friends, God said, now I can bless you because you're no longer just worried about you and your problems, but you now have a world vision that's comparable to God's vision. It's why it baffles me why people say, I got too much going on in my life. I can't really serve in church right now. I, I can't host a connect group. I can't. No, 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 no. Don't you understand? The more you focus on you, the more you guarantee that God can't let you out of that situation. But the more you make a decision, it doesn't matter what's going on in my life. I will fulfill the call of God on my life. You're positioning yourself for God to restore all that you have. Last thing is this, write this down. 
no matter how bad it gets, make the enemy pay. No matter how bad it gets, make the enemy pay. As Christians, hear me. I'm getting in trouble. The Bible says that we need to renew our mind. Not think as the world thinks, but think as God thinks, and then you'll be able to prove the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Here's how the world thinks. My week was so bad, I deserved a party on Friday. I've been through so much, let me just turn up. And I'm not even talking about sin, I'm just talking about let me just let it out. When I graduate college, I'm going to go finance a car. I'm going to run up this credit card. I'm going to do all. I spent four years getting that there. I deserve, I deserve, I did. Do you know what that's the mindset of? Someone who values survival. Not someone who wants to dominate. God said take dominion. He didn't say take survival. And for so many of us, when we come out of a sickness, come out of a, a marital issue, a relational issue, a career issue, whatever it may be, we're just, and I'm, I've been there, I'm not getting mad at you, we're just so happy that we can exhale. So ha- some of us are paranoid because you have no storms in your life right now. You're still looking over your shoulder. Who's coming for me? What do you want? I just wanted to say hi. You okay? When you come on the other side of that storm, don't you dare settle for I made it. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. I made it is not a testimony. It didn't kill me is not worth shouting over. He did not die on the cross for your survival. He died on the cross that you would dominate. Here is a biblical principle. Every time a thief steals something, he was required to give back double if what he stole was recovered. So if a thief stole an ox from me, he was required to give two back if my ox is still alive. If he cut my ox up and sold it at a market, he was required to give seven times more what was stolen. Exodus 22, 4 says this, if the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. Somebody say double. We are walking in our biblical inheritance when we demand that the enemy restore double. So what does that mean? That means that if you battled sickness and it took you six months or 18 months to get back to a place of health, that God needs to restore double of the time that you were stolen. Whatever would have happened in those six months, I now need to see 12 months worth of supernatural progress in my life as a result of what was stolen from me. In Job 42, 10, it says this, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Somebody say double. Come on, no, no, no. Somebody say double for your trouble. Now, one of the things I try to do often is take biblical principles and make them practical. It's very easy to say, make the enemy pay. How? Where is he? Who's going to arrest him and jack him up and make him give me back my stuff? Okay, I have a question for you. If a thief breaks in your house and takes your stuff, who do you call? 
Call the police. Who makes the thief restore everything that he stole? Not the police, the judge. The police just take that thief to the judge and you sit in a court case and you have a list of everything that was in your house that was stolen. The judge said, you got to pay this back, that back, this back, that back, and you served three years. Huh? What does the Bible call Jesus? The righteous judge. So what does it mean to never say die? It means that after I've gone through that storm, that I'm not just saying, hey, I made it, thank God, I'm all the way through. But no, 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 no. I'm going to God in prayer. And I'm saying, God, you are the righteous judge. And you said in your word that anything that was stolen from me must be restored double. And God, I know that it was the enemy that attacked my marriage. And that's why we were on the rocks for three years. So now, God, I need six years of favor and blessings and mercy in our marriage. God, I lost six months fighting for my child's health. And God, I'm believing that you're going to fast forward their life 12 months. Not because I made that up, but because that's what you, the righteous judge, promised in your word. Job 42, 12 says this. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. God restored double for everything Job lost down to the donkey. If we have faith, God will restore everything that you lost in a storm. Now I've gotten to a place in my life where I don't celebrate storms. I'm not excited about storms, but storms do build my faith. Because I know that when the enemy's attacking, A, God's protecting. Here's the bad part. It means God's trying to do something in my heart. He's trying to heal. He's trying to reveal. He's trying to restore. And I'm like, okay, let's get this over real quick. God, created me a clean heart. Come on, like David. God, search me. Tell me. Let me get over this. But two, I know there's a greater blessing on the other side of this. Haggai chapter 2 verse 9 says this, The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. One more time. The glory of this, somebody say latter, temple, shall be greater than the former. Do you know how committed God is to restoring double for your trouble? Oh, I'm in here, but I'm going to mess with you for one second. This will mess you up. Do you know heaven was never planned for you? Huh? Wait, that's all of Christianity. I want to go to heaven. Heaven wasn't for you. Huh? What was for you? Garden of Eden. The earth. By the way, it was perfect. And then Satan dared attack with sin. And God said, after I have overcome victory over sin, I can't restore mankind back to where they were originally created to be because I'm not a God that just restores. I'm a God that doubles everything that the enemy attacked. So because he dared attack where they are, earth is no longer fitting for them. I don't want to visit them, but I'm going to have them reside with me in heaven for all of eternity. The essence of who God is, is he never puts things back the way he found them. He always restores more and was stolen. Hear me. If you're in a storm, you're going to survive. You're going to make it. You're not going to end here. But don't let this storm steal your hope or steal your faith. 
demand that you receive double from God everything that the enemy has stolen. Father God, we're grateful. God, we're thankful. God, for your presence, for your mercy, for your grace. God, we thank you that you are the God in our storm, guarding us, covering us, protecting us. God, my prayer is that you would search our hearts. God, show us where we've given access to the enemy. May there be pride or rebellion or whatever it may be. God, deal with our hearts. God, right now we demand that the enemy restore double for everything that was stolen. Just where you are with your eyes closed and your head bowed, if you could pray this prayer with me and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Just give God a moment to make this time, to make this message personal to you. For some of you, you first got to acknowledge that you're in a storm and you're angry. You think it's not fair. You think you don't deserve it. All that may be true, but God can't bring peace in your storm until you allow him to be in your storm. Right where you are, Arthur, close your eyes, your head bowed. If you could pray this prayer, say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? And I want to pray particularly for those of you that you may not be going through a storm. Maybe you are, but if you'd be honest, you're going through life by yourself. Maybe you're like Job and you say, God, I heard of you and I believe in you. I just don't know you for myself. Maybe you didn't know that God wanted to be a part of your life at all. but Now you know. How are you going to act? If you say, Pastor, that's me. I can't say that Christ is the center of my life and I need to make that decision right where you are. You can make that decision right now. Pray this prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for caring about me enough to chase me down, to pursue me. Thank you for dying on the cross so that all my sin, all my mistakes can be forgiven. Right now, I surrender. I give you all of me. Be my Lord, be my Savior, and use me for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Come on, can you celebrate for every single person that just made the greatest decision ever? Type it in the chat. Tell somebody, I just made the greatest decision ever. Hey.